While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. The Marine Corps sings that they serve their country from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. The halls of Montezuma refers to a battle at Chapultepec Castle in Mexico during the Mexican-American War in 1847, and yeah, Montezuma didn't build the castle, and he died a few centuries before there was a U.S. Marine Corps, but it's great imagery, and really doesn't apply to what we're talking about today. Our story today will take us to the shores of Tripoli. A hero of Tripoli duels, wars with the British, French, and African pirates, and a memorable toast that is still debated today. This is Moving Through Georgia, Season 2, Episode 9, Stephen Decatur. Decatur's father served in the newly organized United States Navy during the Revolution, although some sources do refer to him as a privateer. I think the lines get a little blurry when your country is still in the throes of the war for independence. Stephen Decatur Jr. was born in 1779 and spent some time at sea with his father as a child. He eventually attended the University of Pennsylvania, then joined the U.S. Navy as a midshipman in 1797. At this point in American history, pretty much every decision was still establishing precedent for the new nation. Since 1793, tensions with France were becoming strained as the United States stopped repaying French loans from the Revolution and France engaged in some military action with England. Basically, France's role in the world was changing after the French Revolution. Both France and England interpreted various treaties differently and began attacking or seizing American ships. The United States Navy was formally established to protect American interests at sea, and hostilities began with the French mostly in the Caribbean. This is significant because war was never formally declared against France and Congress instead passed an act further to protect the commerce of the United States, which states that the president is authorized to instruct U.S. vessels to subdue, seize, and take any armed French vessel which shall be found within the jurisdictional limits of the United States or elsewhere on the high seas. This event was called the Quasi-War, and it's still controversial. The right of the President or the Congress to authorize force without a declaration of war would later be challenged over Vietnam, and it's still argued concerning the War on Terror. It's an interesting constitutional point, but what's important for our story is that Stephen Decatur entered the naval service just as the U.S. went into action. He was appointed as a midshipman on a ship called the United States, and after some time at sea, the ship put into Philadelphia for repairs. You don't think of Philadelphia as being a big port town, but it is. Ships travel in and out through the Delaware River. 
Part of Decatur's duties was to recruit new sailors, and apparently the captain of a merchant ship expressed his annoyance at losing some sailors to the Navy with some disparaging comments. Decatur walked away from the situation, but his father felt that the family's honor had been insulted, so a demand was sent to that captain to apologize for his comments. He refused, and so a duel was arranged. We've discussed the various arrangements and rules regarding duels, and we will again even before the end of this episode. Decatur supposedly told his second that he had no intention to kill his opponent, only to shoot him in the hip. And apparently that's exactly what he did. There are a lot of details about Decatur's second duel, spoiler alert, but the only details I could find on this one are in a book I just can't seem to get hold of. I'm not sure if Decatur was wounded in this duel, but suffice it to say that the matter was settled and Decatur's career could resume. He commanded a ship that captured some French vessels and rescued some American ships. The Quasi-War ended in 1800 with an agreement that the United States would be considered a neutral country at sea, mostly because France and Napoleon had enough to deal with at the time on the European continent. And about that time, things started to get complicated a lot further away. The northern coast of Africa was known as the Barbary Coast, and it was controlled by the Ottoman Empire through Morocco, Tunis, and Tripoli, and a few other small principalities. It was the home of a long-standing culture of piracy and the slave trade. European nations regularly paid tribute to those pirates to keep their ships safe, and the pirates in question began to realize that the United States had achieved independence from Britain and therefore was no longer covered by their tribute payments. And there was a lot of merchant trade on American ships in the Mediterranean at that time. The pirates eventually started targeting those American ships. The Pasha of Tripoli sent a demand for $200,000 in protection money. Jefferson responded by sending ships to the Mediterranean. Several missions were sent with varying success, but not a lot. In 1803, the USS Philadelphia chased a Tripolian raiding vessel and ran aground on an unmarked shoal. Some small boats left Tripoli Harbor and began to shell the helpless ship. The captain was a man named William Bainbridge, and we will definitely hear that name again. He was forced to surrender the ship, and the locals refloated it and sailed it into the harbor with the American crew as prisoners. The story I'm about to tell is from an article in the Naval War College Review called The Most Daring Act of the Age, and it also sounds a bit like something Joseph Habersham might attempt. Decatur was in the area commanding the USS Enterprise. There have been quite a few ships with that name, and apparently still will be, and he had recently captured a small merchant ship. The Philadelphia in Tripoli Harbor was protected by too many guns, especially from a fort, to make an open attack really feasible, so Decatur proposed to sneak in on the merchant ship and retake the vessel. He was granted permission, but with one change. The commanding officer of the fleet didn't think the Philadelphia was in any shape to sail out of the harbor, so he just wanted it destroyed. 
The journey to Tripoli was hard. There was a brutal storm and some of the men's supplies turned out to be bad. But one night the men cleared the decks and began sailing into the harbor, eventually pulling up right alongside Philadelphia. The boarding party of 60 men swarmed aboard, killed the guards, and began preparations to burn the ship. The harbor fort began firing and they cast off in their merchant ship and when the burning Philadelphia broke loose and came to rest against the fort, the confusion helped them escape to safety. Decatur would return to Tripoli a few years later in 1804 for another attack on the harbor and when the hostilities ended a year later, Decatur was a captain. He achieved the rank of Commodore at the start of the War of 1812, where he commanded the USS United States through some successful ship-to-ship -ship battles. There are some good stories here from the War of 1812. Decatur was in command of the USS United States when he encountered a British ship called HMS Macedonian. Decatur and the captain of Macedonian had actually met previously and had discussed what the outcome of a battle between the two would turn out to look like. One account says the British captain bet a fur hat that his ship would prevail and another says that Decatur answered the question by saying, If we meet with forces that might be fairly called equal, the conflict would be severe but the flag of my country on the ship I command shall never leave the staff on which it waves as long as there is a hull to support it. He was right. When the battle was over, Macedonian had lost 43 sailors and had over 60 wounded. The Americans had seven killed and five wounded. The Americans took the ship and would eventually become part of the United States Navy, and a few American sailors that had been impressed into the British crew were also returned to service with the United States. Another time, Decatur and a few other vessels were blockaded in the harbor at New London, Connecticut by some British ships. The British ships had no intention to attack until things were to their advantage, and the Americans had no alternative but to wait. Decatur did propose a solution, however. Again, this was a duel. He suggested to the British captain that two American and two British ships should fight a battle in open water. There was a round of arrangements and negotiations between both sides, but no terms could be reached that both would agree on, and the duel never took place. Jump ahead to 1814 and Decatur is in charge of the USS President. Again, he's bottled up in a harbor, and this time it's New York Harbor, with the British blocking his escape. After a snowstorm caused the British to rearrange their positions in the harbor, Decatur and the USS President attempted to run the blockade. There was an error in navigation, and the President ran aground on a sandbar. This wasn't the end, however, as the ship broke free after about an hour and headed for open water. Even with the damage, the President was still pretty fast. A British ship managed to catch up, and after a fairly long battle, they took Decatur's ship. Decatur and the survivors of his crew spent a little over a year in a jail in Bermuda and eventually returned at the end of the war in 1815. Quite a career, but we're still going. After recovering from his time as a prisoner, Decatur returned to the Mediterranean to deal with the Barbary pirates again. 
He was there for the close of this war, or the close of the hostilities, since this was not a declared war, and was able to display enough American military might to secure good terms for any treaties. At one point, he commented that the settlements given by the various enemies had been dictated at the mouths of our cannon. Decatur served on the Board of Naval Commissioners after all this. He had a house in Washington, which is now a museum, and his house has quite a history as well. While on the board, the issue of Captain James Barron came up. This is what I love about history, and this is what sometimes drives me crazy when I put a podcast together. There's so many opportunities to digress during the course of an individual's life or a story, and sometimes it can be hard to decide which rabbit holes you're going to go down. So we're going to go partly down this rabbit hole here. I mean, sometimes I'm amazed I ever reach the end of a story. James Barron was from a naval family. His father was a leading figure in what Navy the United States did have during the Revolution. Barron himself served in the war against France and spent some time in the Mediterranean. In 1807, he was commander of a ship called the USS Chesapeake, in which he came across a British ship whose captain threatened him. When the fighting started, Barron's ship had not been properly prepared for combat. There was great loss of life and Barron himself was wounded. The issue came to a court-martial, with Stephen Decatur appointed a member. He didn't want to serve and he expressed in a letter that he had already determined that Barron was negligent. He was, however, ordered to take part in the court-martial and judge Barron fairly and impartially. Barron was found guilty and suspended without pay for five years. During that time, he worked in the Merchant Marine in South America and in Europe and struggled to support his family. But he always looked to eventually being reinstated. By 1818, he was still trying, and he began to blame Decatur for keeping him from the service. It isn't hard to figure out. Decatur actually wrote to him saying he didn't believe Barron belonged in the Navy and would never approve his reinstatement. Surprise, surprise, a duel was proposed. By now, Decatur had acted as a second in at least two other duels, maybe as many as four, so he had some experience with this. Arrangements were made. The two would meet in Maryland. They would have pistols and stand eight paces from each other. A neutral party, who just happened to be Captain William Bainbridge, the captain who lost the Philadelphia back in Tripoli Harbor, would order the men to take aim and then count to three. Decatur is said to have commented that he originally planned to miss Barron intentionally, but under the circumstances set up by the two seconds, he felt compelled to at least wound his opponent. He planned to shoot him in the hip. Can I digress one more time? I mean, it's really possible that Barron second and William Bainbridge had it out for Stephen Decatur and chose the eight-pace distance due to Barron's notorious nearsightedness. There's also a report that Barron talked to Decatur before the duel and the men agreed that they were not really enemies after all, but they were then hustled onto the dueling field by the seconds. Each man shot the other in the hip. Barron survived, but Decatur died late in the evening in terrible agony. Stephen Decatur was 41 years old. His funeral was attended by just about everybody in Washington, including President James Monroe. 
When he started his naval career, there wasn't much of a navy at all. He supervised the building of ships, fought in four wars, or one war and three police actions, and was called by one sailor the mainmast of the navy. His name is memorialized around the country and around here the city of Decatur and Decatur County in South Georgia. Interestingly, one of the cities in Decatur County is Bainbridge, Bainbridge being the name of one of the seconds that Decatur's wife accused of arranging the duel to favor Baron and kill her husband. One more point on Stephen Decatur, but first I just want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast focusing on Northeast Georgia. If you like what you hear, please feel free to leave us some stars or leave a review on whatever podcast service you use. And any criticism, compliments, or complaints could be sent to movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. I love hearing from people. I love knowing that people are listening to this. In Washington, D.C., at a celebration of Decatur's success against the Barbary Pirates, Decatur gave a famous toast in which he said, Our country, in her intercourse with foreign nations, may she always be in the right, but our country, right or wrong. I remember a very spirited class discussion in my 7th grade social studies class over this quote. I always try to think of patriotism like loyalty to a family. There are some elements of my family that I don't want to be associated with or be known for, but in the end, it's my family. This is a lesson I came to understand pretty early on while dating. Your girlfriend or your wife or your husband or whatever may criticize or complain about people in their family, but if you're dumb enough to contribute some criticism, you find out pretty quick that criticism is really only allowed from those within the family. Loyalty to a family or to a country plays a long game. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe From an a deputy gal to Georgia That's all